Hello guys and welcome to today's episode. We're going to read two chapters to finish off volume two because I was trying to do so on my end separate back to back and um, the first one is uh, uh, chapter 11, Gilm well, Gilmore, it's like there's a Gilmore girls, girls killer but there wasn't, um, it's called the Glamour's Girl Slayer and I did that one first and when I submitted that one in here and like through Spotify it the sound didn't quite qualify in or didn't like quite sync through to it so now it works because I tested it like twice the only problem was this is like the headphones that I have are like more like gaming headphones you know so there's that but um other than that yeah, we're going to do two episodes. Uh, well, um, chapter 11, The Glamour Girl Slayer, and Chapter 12, A Walking Shadow. But they're very short. This one's like seven pages, the chapter 11, and the chapter 12 is like four pages. Not even. Maybe five. So chapter 11, here goes nothing. This one was in Colorado. Well, he was the person, the killer was born in the Bronx, New York. So, in the book, it says Glatman, but I'm going to call him Harvey, because that's his name. So, from the early age, Harvey had a strange satisfaction with rope. At the tender age of three, Harvey's mother caught him with a string tied around his penis and he had placed the opposite end of the string in a drawer close to the drawer and closed the drawer and leaned back. As a toddler, Harvey showed strange behavior. He would laugh or cry with no apparent reason and had no interest in playing games or with his toys. Just a year later, he was caught with a rope tied around his neck, the free end thrown over a pipe. He was pulled He was pulling on the rope with one hand and pulling on his penis with the other. Where a boy of only four in the 1930s got these ideas, we will never know. Which is kind of true, because who in the 1930s or 40s is curious as to what rope does to their own private part? Not even me. I'm not even interested in that. Especially at the age of three. I'm more curious at the world around me and how to walk, run, kick, skip, you know? Those sort of things. Like, your cognitive abilities. More or less of what the fuck a rope does to your private part. I don't know. But moving on, in 1937, at the age of 10, his family moved from the Bronx, New York, to Denver, Colorado. Next year, Harvey's parents noticed he had red burns around his neck. Harvey had been masturbating while hanging himself with a rope to the point of blackout. Harvey's father ridiculed him for this, telling him that masturbating would give him acne and make him queer. Again, you're... 
not saying this again, but it's I said this from the beginning. Like, if you tell your kids, hey, don't do this because it's going to make you lesbian. Don't do this because it's going to make you gay. You make them feel self-centered. And this is why your kids do not come out to you as lesbian, gay, bisexual, pansexual, asexual, trans, a transgender guy, a transgender girl, or queer. Because you, like, you as the parents, like, say stupid shit. Like, don't do that, Jimmy, because that's going to make you queer. Like, in a more sturdy voice. I'm not going to do it more sturdy because I am scary when I'm sturdy. So, I'm not going to do that. By the time he entered junior high, Harvey did indeed have acne, a set of very large ears, and buck teeth. The kids at school bullied him for his looks and in his extreme fear of girls. He would turn bright red if a girl ever spoke to him. Schoolmates nicknamed him like nicknamed him Weasel and Chipmunk, and you can guess why, because of the way he looked on his fish. His fish. And it's not fish, I said fish. Like face. Um his fascination with rope and bondage and auto Arthrotic association continued, and Harvey's parents took him to a psychiatrist where he was prescribed pills. By the time he reached high school, he had started breaking into women's homes. He could only break in to take an item, an item, like any item, per se, like a knife, a, a phone, like a, like an unused flip phone, jewelry, whatnot, a trophy of some sort to prove that he had power over the women. He had seemed to be fascinated with the thrill of the fact rather than the actual trophy. Eventually, he had break, just breaking him wasn't enough. At the age of 12, he started to follow women home to find out where they lived. Soon, he broke into that specific woman's home and tied her with rope and gagged her. And he then fondled her like with her breasts. And when they meant fondle, they meant he was playing with her breasts. Sometimes, he would break into the house of women, tie them up, play with them and cuddle with them on the couch while watching sitcoms with them. He thrived on the fear of women. As Harvey would break into houses, he started stealing guns, acquired a .38 revolver at the age of 17. He would use this gun to stop random women on the street and threaten them, taking money and forcing them to take their clothes off. Sometimes he would snatch a woman's purse and then turn right around and throw the purse back at the woman. Again, just a show of power. On May, no, not on May, but in May in 1945, Harvey abducted Nor Noreen Laurel, drove her out of town, played with her, but didn't rape her. He then drove her back home where she immediately went to the police and Noreen identified Harvey from the police photos. He was arrested for only attempted burglary. Harvey's mother paid $2,000 to bail him out of jail, but within a month, he had molested another woman and let her go. This time, Harvey was arrested again and sent to Colorado State Prison, but after only eight months, he was released for good behavior. Though being in the top percentage of his high school class, Harvey didn't graduate because he was in jail at the time. Just three weeks after leaving the Colorado State Prison, 
Harvey mugged a young couple by pulling a cap gun on them. The gun was just a toy, but the couple had no idea. He tied up the man with rope and fondled, fondled played with the woman's breasts. But, but when the man tried to escape, Harvey stabbed him in the shoulder and ran. Just days later, Harvey fled back to Albany, New York and continued his mayhem. He had mugged and played with several young unsuspecting women and was arrested yet again. By the time he was 21, Harvey was serving a 10-year sentence in Sing Sing Correctional Facility where psychologists diagnosed him with psychopathic personality but also had a high IQ. Harvey was a model prisoner and was released early after only serving three years. Police sent him back to Denver to finish his parole, living with his mother. Harvey's parole ended in September 1956. He was no longer required to live in Denver. He quickly packed up and moved to Los Angeles, California. When he lived in L.A., Um, sorry. Where was I? When he arrived in L.A., he worked as a television repairman, a trade that he learned during his time in prison. He also had a fascination with photography ever since his high school years. Once he was set up in the Los Angeles area, he realized that there was plenty of beautiful women there that desperately wanted to be movie stars and models. And when they realized how hard it was to get into the movies... They would, they would turn to posing as pin-up girls, which was basically a photographic way of, like, of girls, like, posing on the wall and, like, kind of pin up and, like, their hands in their pants pocket sort of position or in a way that the photographer wants them to be positioned against the wall. That's why it's called pin-up girls. Harvey would simply put an ad in the newspaper looking for models and they would call him begging for work. So, his first victim started on August 1st, 1957. A 19-year-old model named Judy Dull answered his ad. Judy was going through a bitter divorce and was trying to get custody of her child. She was an aspiring actress, but desperate for money to pay for a lawyer and agreed to meet Harvey for a photo shoot. Harvey's ad claimed that he needed photos for a detective magazine known as known in the 50s as Pope Fiction magazines. When Judy arrived wearing a tight skirt and a sweater that he as he requested, Harvey bound her with rope and gagged her mouth. All part of the photo shoot. He took mag he took Photos of her and told her to look frightened, just as Detective Magazine cover would look. And then he escalated his sadistic game. Harvey pulled a gun on her and get photos of her truly looking frightened. He then untied her legs and raped her. At 30 years old, this was the first time Harvey had ever had intercourse, all the while taking photos. After he finished, he told her he would release her and put her back in his car. He wasn't driving her home, though. He drove her east of Interstate 10 towards Indio, California, and brought her to the desert. He then threw her on 
her stomach with her hands and feet still tied. He tied another rope to the build to the binding on her feet, looped it around her neck, put his knee in the small of her back, and pulled. He strangled Judy Dull to death in the middle of the California desert. He posed her in a few more post-mortem photos and then buried her body in a shallow grave. When Judy's roommate couldn't get in touch with her, she tried to call the phone number she had for the photographer, but it had been disconnected. When a phone is being disconnected, it's either a pay phone or it's either a like one of those dial phones or oh, like, you know, those flip phones because they had flip phones then too in the 50s. Um, so the roommate had never seen the photographer. So police had nothing to go on and assumed that she had just left town. Seven months later, using alias George Williams, Harvey met a 24-year-old girl through the Patty Sullivan Lonely Hearts Club. On their first date, he picked up Shirley Ann Bridgeford at her home and even met several of her relatives. They were planning on an evening of dinner and dancing, but the dancing never happened. After dinner, Harvey drove to the Vallecito Mountains and raped her. He then put flash bulbs on his camera and took photos of his victim on the mountainside at night. After the sun came up, he strangled her and posed her and took photos of her dead body. Harvey's next victim was a 24-year-old model he again hired for pin-up photos. Ruth Mercado showed up at his apartment only to be tied and raped. And then, like Shirley Ann Bridgeford, Harvey took her to the Vallecito Mountains, raped her again, and strangled her to death. He took photos throughout the entire ordeal. In October 1958, Harvey then got the idea to use proper modeling agency. He would get more beautiful top models that way. He contacted Diane Studios, and they assigned him one of their newest models, Lorraine Bigital. If I'm pronouncing her last name right, it's V-I-G-I-L. Lorraine had a bad feeling about Harvey from the very beginning. He showed up at 8 p.m. in the evening and informed her that they were changing the location of the photo shoot. As they were driving, Lorraine argued with him. Harvey had enough, pulled over to the side of the road, and pulled a gun on her. Lorraine wasn't about to let this man have his way with her. She quickly grabbed the barrel of the gun and tried twisting it away from him. The gun accidentally fired, grazed, grazing her leg, but it didn't stop her. Chicken, the two continued fighting over the gun and ended it up out of the car on the side of the road. Harvey was a small man, and eventually Lorraine overpowered him, got the gun from his hands, and pistol whipped him. When you pistol whip someone, you just grab hold of the gun like with your hand, and you just wham, hit him on the side of the head. And that... It, Either how powerful the blow was to the head with the gun hit in the head could create either them falling to the floor and waking up 10 to 20 minutes later or them just getting kind of like dizzy. In an amazing stroke of luck, a police car saw the scuffle and pulled over and arrested Harvey. During Harvey's interrogation, he confessed to the murders of Judy Dull, 
Shirley N. Bridgeford and Ruth Mer Merci Mercado. I was going to say Mercedo. Mercado. After his confession, Harvey led police to the desert to recover the bodies of Ruth Mercedo and Shirley Ann Bridge Bridgeford. During the interrogation, Harvey assumed the police had already found the a toolbox he had hidden at his house. Quote, you know I killed them. There's no way you could have known unless you found the toolbox. End quote. Quote, the toolbox? The police asked. End quote. Open quote. The one in my house with the pictures. The dead girls? That's where I had hid them. The pictures. In my toolbox. You know what I mean. You're just playing with me now. End quote. Until this point, the police didn't know about the toolbox. When they found the toolbox in his apartment, it was filled with hundreds of photos he had taken and revealed the methodology of his murders. He had a sequence that he liked to photograph the girls. He would first photograph them looking very innocent with a thrill look on their face and enjoying the photo shoot. The second series would be a look of horror knowing that they would soon be sexually abused and most likely killed. The final photos were after he strangled the life out of the girls. Harvey waived his right to a jury trial. Terrified of spending the rest of his life in jail, Harvey wanted the quickest possible route to end his life. He requested a, the death penalty several times and asked to remove the automatic appeal given to all death penalty cases. The trial only lasted three days. The prosecution played recordings of Harvey's four-hour interrogation where he described the murders in a great detail, a very little emotion. Harvey was found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. When the judge handed down the death sentences, Harvey said, quote, It's better this way. I knew this is the way it would be, end quote. Harvey spent the next nine months in San Quentin State Prison, awaiting his execution. Coincidentally, the same prison would later hold Charles Manson and Richard Ramirez. On September 18, 1959, at the age of 31, Harvey went to the gas chamber. The sodium cyanide took 12 minutes to kill him. In 1966, parts of Harvey's story was used in a movie called Dragnet in 19, 1966. They later made the movie into a weekly primetime show. The movie used actual quotes from Harvey. Quote, the reason I killed those girls was because they asked me to. They did. All of them. They said they'd rather be dead than be with me. Unquote. It was believed that Harvey may have killed before Judy Dull while he was still in Colorado. The body of a woman referred to as Boulder Jane Doe was discovered in Boulder, Colorado in 1954 during the same time that Harvey was there. She died by being hit by a car. Harvey drove a 1951 Dodge Cornette, and the police believe 
The damage to her body was consistent with the kind of car. Well, with that kind of car that Harvey drove, the Dodge Cornet. Police, however, could never prove it. Her identity was never revealed through de- Like, her body was finally- Sorry. Her body was finally revealed through DNA 51 years later in 2009 as a 19-year-old Dorothy Gay Howard from Phoenix, Arizona. That is the end of Chapter 11. Chapter 12, A Walking Shadow. And this takes place in Hawaii in 1929. And the life in Hawaii in 1929 was a lot different than it is today, especially with poor Japanese families. There was a lot of racial tension in Hawaii, mostly between wealthy white people and poor Japanese people. The events in November 1929 would escalate those tensions exponentially. Miles, we're going to call him Miles because his last name is a weird name, but it's pretty cool in my defense. Um, but Miles was a 19-year-old eldest boy of a Japanese family with seven kids. By all accounts, Miles was quiet, responsible Japanese boy who stayed out of trouble and worked hard to support his family. As the oldest of the large family, much responsibly fell upon Miles. Miles' father worked long hours, but it wasn't enough for the large family to survive. Miles had to drop out of high school to work to support the family. He worked 80 hours, like worked 80 hour weeks at Queens Hospital, but it still wasn't enough. The family was several months behind on their rent, on their rent, and the stress was building in Miles. Twice he thought he would be better off dead and had attempted suicide. He even failed at that task, which added to the humiliation and embarrassment. Miles also suffered from a degenerative dissociative disorder. He had mental issues that were handed, well, handed, handled differently in those days in 1929. They all were brushed under the rug, though. It's basically, the, the this associative disorder is basically, like, not remembering things quite well. Um, what else? There's more to that. Like, your surroundings, your actions, all that stuff. One morning, there was a knock at the family's front door, and the mother's, his mother answered the door. Miles could hear her arguing with a representative from the Hawaiian Trust Company. They were there again to collect the bank rent, but the family simply didn't have it. The rent was $35 per month, and when they missed several months' payments, the fees piled on, making the bill unbearable. This fueled the anger inside Miles. In recent years, Miles had been following two crimes that were in the news. First was that of Nathan Leopold and Richard Webb, two teenage boys who kidnapped and, and killed a young boy using a chisel and beat him over the head and then sent a ransom letter to the rich father. Another kidnapping Miles followed was a perpetrated William Hackman. Hackman had kidnapped a young girl by showing up at her school posing as an employee of the girl's father. He told teachers the girl's father was in a terrible accident and she needed to come with him. Hickman then demanded a ransom from the girl's father and ultimately killed her. Miles thought he would com he could combine those two crimes to commit the perfect crime. Miles called the Punchahowl 
the Punyahao school and asked to speak to the registrar. He told the registrar he was calling from Queen's Hospital. He claimed that Guile Jamison's mother had been in a terrible car accident. I keep calling him Giles, but it's Gillies. It's Gilly. Gillies? Gillies. It's Gillies Jamison's mother had been in a terrible car accident, and they were sending a car immediately to pick up the boy. Using a uniform from the hospital where he worked, Miles posed as a hospital orderly and hired a taxi cab to take him to the school for Gilly. Jamison, the 10-year-old son of Frederick Jamison. Frederick Jamison was the vice president of the Hawaiian Trust Company. Giles, no, Gillies' teacher and the principal of the school later told police that there was nothing unusual about the young Japanese man that picked up Gillies. Their only description was that he was Japanese and had slicked black black hair or slick, slicked black hair and black glasses. Frederick Jamison soon received a ransom note from Miles peppered with strange Shakespeare quotes from Macbeth. And oh boy, let me tell you, I don't like the story of Macbeth. It's weird. It's a weird Shakespearean story. It's like close and primarily similar to Romeo and Juliet. It's just this guy that wants to be the next ruler and just kills the previous ruler in order to become king. And bad things happen along his way to become king in the process. So... Never really liked that story because it was like, where thou art, that, that, it's like that, um, kid that had the stuttering problem meme when he goes like, will you ever have a dream that you, that you, it's like, like that to me. Um, but continuing on, quote, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more, end quote. It seemed that Miles was dramatically referencing his, de- his desperation and lack of will to live. The ransom note demanded $10,000 for the safe release for his son. But Miles had no intention of releasing the young boy. Before the Jamison family had a chance to respond to the ransom, Miles took Gillies behind the Seaside Hotel where the International Marketplace now stands on Kala Kohana Kala Kohana There's no N, sorry, I'm trying to pronounce it correctly. Kala Kohana Avenue just opposite the Royal Hawaiian Hotel to a grouping Kiawe trees. There he took a hardened steel chessel similar to what he had read that Leopold and Loeb used and beat the boy over the head and then strangled him to death. And when the media heard about the missing boy, the entire island of Oahu heard the, was on alert. Racial tension flared because the young boy was a white, was white and the kidnapper was said to be Japanese. Japanese businesses had to close because they were getting threats from white people. Everyone was looking for the boy, 
The Wahoo schools let out early, and 20,000 students joined in the search for gillies across the island. Jamison's had a chauffeur they had fired some weeks prior, and he became the first suspect. Harry Kyson was arrested and brought in for questioning and was put under the influence of a quote-unquote truth serum. I want to say quote-unquote, that's literally in quotes here. In those days, people believed that hyocene and hydrobromide would force people to tell the truth. Amazingly, it's still used to some parts of the world today, but Kaya-san was ultimately found innocent and released. Frederick Jamison revealed, received a phone call from the kidnapper. The man sent to meet him at a band concert at Tom's Square and to bring $4,000 and he would give up the boy. No cops. Jamison did as he was told and didn't tell the police. Miles showed up wearing a black mask and took the money from Jamison and disappeared into the crowd without saying a word about the boy. Jamison had paid the $4,000 in $5 bills, and being a banker, he made a note of the serial numbers. And police alerted local businesses to watch for the bills, and it wasn't long before Miles was caught trying to buy a train ticket with the money. When apprehended, Miles quickly confessed. About the same time that Miles was arrested, the body of Gillies Jamison was found in Waikiki. Miles had discovered his body with newspaper and a piece. Well, Miles had covered the poor boy's body with newspapers and a piece of clipboard, like he was a piece of fucking trash. On, on the clipboard, Miles wrote. Quote, if you want to die, you have to, you have the right to kill others so that you, in turn, will be killed. The devil it is for you to decide. End quote. The rest of Miles ignited outrage throughout the island. 20,000 people gathered outside the jail after his arrest. People called the fire department to deal with the massive mob and sprayed s seven streams of water at the crowd to try to get them to disperse. The angry mob demanded a swift and powerful punishment. Swift it was, police could not handle the pressure from the public and went and wanted this whole ordeal over with as quickly as possible. It seemed that Miles wanted the same. Miles was arrested, tried, and convicted and sentenced to hang within three weeks. Miles was examined quickly by three psychiatrists appointed by the police for only 90 minutes. At that time, the examinations normally took several days, but police was feeling the pressure and needed to push to judgment. Psychiatrists determined that he was competent and ready to stand trial. Miles freely admitted his guilt and asked specifically to be hanged, and the prosecution was more than happy to oblige. In a, in a cross or in a gross violation of his rights, his two quaint appointed public defenders offered no defense at all and called no witnesses. Though he admitted to killing the boy, Miles was not allowed to enter a plea, like a guilty plea. They wanted him hanged and forced him to plead. They forced him to plead not guilty. A Navy psychiatrist offered to enter his testimony for the defense, but was denied. The jury appointed 
connected to the case included in them included members of the search party the man who dug the boy's grave and even frederick jameson's personal bodyguard despite several attempts for an appeal to show that miles was mentally unable to stand trial they denied all requests the crime and conviction opened large divisions on oahu between the whites and the japanese the japanese Families throughout Hawaii felt a sense of fear and resentment for years after the crime. Miles' family was constantly harassed and moved to Maui to escape the ostracization. Miles was ultimately convicted of first-degree murder and hung in Oahu, at Oahu prison in November 19, 1929, just two months after he kidnapped and killed Giles or Gillies. Jamison. The story of the killing is still told as a ghost story every Halloween to this day in Hawaii. Quote, Until we have understood his personality so thoroughly and the circumstances of his life so fully that we can actually feel how he came to act as he did, we have not given him the defense in which he is morally entitled. We cannot discover to what extent society is to blame for this horrendous or yeah horrendous or hideous crime or what social changes we should endeavor to bring about end quote and this quote was from the university of hawaii hawaii professor dr lockwood merrick in a letter to the then governor of Farrington over 90 years ago. That was the end of chapter 12, A Walking Shadow. Next time, when we come back on the next episode, we're going to be talking about The Coffee Killer of Volume 3. Chapter 1, that is an interesting one as well. But I hope you guys enjoyed these two back-to-back episodes of Chapter 11 and Chapter 12. Speak to you guys in the next one. Bye-bye.